Freakish History takes a deep dive into stranger-than-fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In Season 1, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Tencent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a 10 cent beer night odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year, the media celebrate the anniversary of the 10 cent beer night riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium. Fans, awash in cheap beer, streaked, chanted obscenities, pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives, then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting Texas Rangers and their own home team Indians. This is that story. Previously on Heading for Home, George Hendrick to the rescue. The sane and the sober fled a beer tsunami. Billy Martin fought fire with fire. Announcer outrage and the tribe threatened. Torres took a strike from Foucault, who stepped off the mound and wiped the sweat dripping from his brow with the back of his glove. Foucault looked Crosby back to first and took the sign from catcher Sunburn. Ball one on a curve outside. Crosby inched off first again. He wasn't much of a threat to steal. He had a grand total of one steal in his MLB career, but a good lead was critical if he wanted to get to third on a single. Foucault, visibly laboring, went into the stretch again and let fly a low fastball that Torres punched up the middle. The ball skipped past Foucault and just debated the outstretched gloves of shortstop Hera and second baseman Randall for a seeing-eye single before center fielder Levito rushed up to contain it, holding Crosby on second. The crowd screamed, banged, and shrieked its approval, demanding complete and utter destruction of the Rangers. The rickety old concrete cavern rocked and rolled to its foundations. One out, two on, the opposing pitcher on the ropes. The Indians down one run in the bottom of the ninth with the game on the line. What would manager Ken Espermani do? Indian shortstop and number nine hitter Frank Duffy was due up. Duffy was 0 for 3 with two strikeouts on the game. The Indians had one more left-handed hitter on the bench, Alan Ashby, a switch-hitting catcher just called up from Oklahoma City. Aspermani sent him up to bat for Duffy. Ashby dug into the left-handed batter's box. Foucault appeared to fully feel the weight of the moment, the heat, the crazy crowd, and the three innings he had already thrown. He stepped off the rubber, mopped his brow, and shook out his arm. Foucault checked the runners as they danced off first and second. He reached back and spun a curve up to the plate. Ashby connected late off the end of the bat and sent a squibber toward Larry Brown at third, who charged and grabbed it cleanly, but had no place to go with the throw. Crosby dashed to third, Torres to second, and young Ashby stood on first with what would be his only major league hit of the season. Bases loaded and still only one out. Everyone in the stadium who could stand now stood. Somehow the Indians had clawed their way back. Somehow... Amid the streakers and explosions and drunken antics, they were on the verge of tying the game up. 
If the Tribe can manage to win the game, they would have a record of 25-25, and 25, the magical 500 mark. Not a bad place to be in June for a team that had been nothing but bad for a long time. Batting next for the Tribe was eccentric but reliable utility man John Lowenstein. The left-handed hitting Lowenstein had worn the collar thus far in the game, going 0 for 4. Foucault was on the ropes. He had given up a double and two singles after getting the first out of the inning. And he was in his third full inning of relief on a warm night. Tired pitchers tend to leave the ball up. With the bases loaded, Foucault went back to the full windup. He wound up and buzzed a slider over the inside corner for a strike. A fastball outside evened up the count. Lowenstein swung and missed at a high and tight fastball for strike two. With the crowd on pins and needles and the game on the line, Foucault stepped off the mound, wiped the sweat again from his brow, tugged on his jersey, hitched up his pants, took a very deep breath, then towed the rubber. Lowenstein stepped out of the box, adjusted his helmet, spit out a sliver of sunflower seed shell, took a deep breath of his own, then stepped back in. Foucault wound and delivered. Lowenstein recognized that it was a slider breaking down and in. Not his pitch, but he couldn't take a chance on a called third strike. He chipped it off the handle of the bat for a weak dribbler foul toward the Indians' dugout. Foucault asked for a new ball, and home plate umpire Larry McCoy dropped a fresh one into the hand of catcher Sunberg, who whipped it out to the pitcher. Sunberg flashed some signs. Foucault nodded his head in agreement, went into the windup, then let loose a high fastball that was supposed to be on the inside corner, but drifted toward the middle of the plate. Lowenstein almost jumped out of his jock when he saw the pitch, but kept his cool and made solid contact with the fat of the bat. The ball elevated out of the infield over second base and continued its journey in a pleasing arc until it reached the glove of center fielder Joe Levito, who corralled it well short of the warning track. All three runners tagged up. The throw from Levito went to third, holding Torres on second and Ashby on first, but Crosby easily scampered home with the tying run. With the Indians tying up the game in the bottom of the ninth in such an unlikely manner, three pinch hits in a row, the first hit of the season for both Crosby and Ashby, the crowd at the stadium actually seemed like a group of baseball fans rejoicing over their home team's comeback and celebrating that they had finally something to rejoice. But the euphoria that swept through the crowd in blissful favor of the Indians was almost immediately followed by a wave of seething vitriol against the Rangers and their manager, Billy Martin. As the fans peered through the thickest of beer goggles at the Rangers, they saw the murderous malice of the Viet Cong, the malignant corruption of the Nixon administration, the treacherous oil market manipulation of OPEC, the National Guard at Kent State. Rangers suck ass. Fuck Billy Martin. Hope your boss crushes. Ain't shit. Walter hurts. Toss him in the net. By now, the Rangers were not in a good mental space. They had been verbally abused by Indians fans all night. They had been chased from their bullpen with explosives. They had suffered a steady bombardment of solids and liquids from the stands. Drunken loons stomped up and down on the roof of their dugout. And they had just blown a four-run lead and were in danger of losing the game. On the field, a young man in an Indians jersey scaled the home run fence in right field, hopped onto the field, and inched his way toward Rangers right fielder Jeff Burrows. The young man moved like a spy in a cartoon, crouching low, stepping high, 
tiptoeing his way across the field toward Burroughs. As the furtive fan made his way toward Burroughs, additional fans hopped over the fence and onto the field in his wake. The noise in the stadium was cacophonous, and Burroughs was focused on getting position for the next batter, Jack Brohammer, coming up with two outs and two on in the bottom of the ninth with the score tied. As a result of these distractions, Burroughs didn't notice the trespasser creeping up behind him. The young man stopped his journey a few yards behind Burroughs, who still hadn't noticed his approach. The fan's plan was to... Um, he obviously didn't have a plan. The young man crouched down even lower, crept up behind Burroughs, then sprang up, snagging the cap off his head. He retreated a few steps, then stood just out of reach, pumped full of liquid courage, waving the hat, taunting Burroughs. Then he dropped the hat. The burly Burroughs, stunned for a moment, turned and sprang into action. He took a few steps toward the cap thief, then wound up to karate kick the pilfering bastard. Burroughs aimed for the gut, but slipped in the damp grass and connected on the upper thigh, his cleats tearing a hole in the thief's pants. The slippery turf and momentum of the kick upended Burroughs completely, and he landed with a thud on the turf. Spying actual fan-player conflict on the field, dozens of deliriously angry, drunken miscreants poured onto the field like a marauding horde of Vikings. Billy Martin, already agitated and twitchy, saw Burroughs confronted, fall to the ground, then become surrounded by enemy forces wielding implements of destruction against his man, an innocent outfielder armed only with a mitt and iffy martial arts training. Let's go, boys! Martin yelled to his players in the dugout as he grabbed a fungo bat and led the charge onto the field. Fired up by Martin and totally fed up with the Indians fans on the night, the Rangers grabbed bats and followed their plucky leader out of the dugout and into harm's way on the field like the light brigade. The field became a combat zone. Fans attacked players. Players attacked fans. Grounds crewmen tried to prevent would-be thieves from stealing bases and anything else not bolted down. Dozens of less hostile fans blithely wandered around the field like they were looking for funnel cakes and a tilt-a-whirl. Oh, this is an absolute tragedy. Absolute tragedy! I've been in this business for over 20 years and I have never seen anything as disgusting as this. I haven't either. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, I just don't know what to say. The right side of the field was clogged with dozens, then hundreds of unhinged and hostile fans running wild. The Indians, feeling a kinship with their fellow ballplayers and fearing that their fans were literally going to kill the Rangers, bolted out onto the field with fire in their eyes and bats in their hands. A ferocious fan wearing only shorts and sneakers with untamed hair and a beard like Ben-Hur stood near first base swinging a folding metal chair in a circular motion over his head. He let it fly, striking Indians relief pitcher Tom Hilgendorf with a clanging blow to the side of the head. Hilgendorf went down hard, clutching his bleeding wound. The feral fan beat on his chest and whooped a triumphant war cry in the direction of his fallen victim. I don't think this game will continue, Joe. The unbelievable thing is people keep jumping out of the stands even after they see what's going on. Well, that shows you the complete lack of brain power on the parts of some people. There is no way I'm going to run out of that field if I see some baseball player waving a bat out there looking for somebody to hit. This is tragic. I'm surprised that the police from the city of Cleveland haven't been called here because we have the matings of a pretty good riot. 
We have a pretty good riot. The field looked like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. Rangers and Indians players swinging bats or fists at paying customers armed with twisted metal objects and unbridled malice. Security guards desperately tried to corral and apprehend rioters who moved like schools of fish darting this way and that. A young man with a hint of a mustache sprinted down the third base line wearing nothing but running shoes and clutching third base to his bosom. He was trailed at an increasing distance by three ponderous security guards huffing and puffing as they stampeded off toward left field. Like the orchestra that played to the bitter end on the Titanic, the stadium organist launched into a jaunty encore rendition of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? The Indians team and management request that you clear the field of play immediately. Thank you. Blow yourself! Guests, please clear the field of play so the game can resume. Thank you. What the game? What the two? Please return your base to its appropriate location. The game cannot resume. Without third base. Kiefer looked defeated. A final insult to his efforts to clear the field and resume the game came in the form of a quartet of Asian businessmen running right at him with second base held high over their heads in victory. Well, the game, I really believe her, will now be called. The field is just mobbed with people and mob rule has taken over. They've stolen the bases. The umpires conferred about an appropriate course of action. On the one hand, the Indians had tied up the game in the bottom of the ninth inning. On the other, the field was an active combat zone and all the bases had been stolen. As the umps conferred, a hunting knife, a knife designed to butcher wild animals, whizzed into the turf just behind the heel of head umpire Nestor Shylock. Shylock turned around, looked down, weighed the significance of the weapon and its proximity to his foot, and called a forfeit in favor of the Rangers. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Due to fan interference and the theft of all bases, tonight's game between the Indians and Rangers has been forfeited in favor of the Rangers. Finally, a fresh crop of Cleveland police in riot gear charged onto the field from various points of entry. And the field went black. Hey, what the hell? Who turned off the lights? Orbited. Just it up. With the lights out and the riot squad on the field, the baseball game turned gang rumble dispersed rather quickly. The drunks and idiots slunk off into the night or were provided chauffeur service to the Gray Bar Hotel. Uncountable beer cups and papers blew this way and that in the warm breeze. Bottles and cans, clumps of fence padding, and twisted pieces of steel wrenched from the stadium itself glinted in the moonlight. Ten-cent beer night at Cleveland Stadium on June 4th, 1974 was not a total success. In addition to the forfeit called against the Indians, pulling defeat out of the jaws of victory with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning 
There were nine arrests, seven emergency room injuries, three stolen bases, extensive damage to the field and stadium, and another embarrassing PR blow to the city of Cleveland. The night was such a fiasco that the team held another 10-cent beer night at the stadium six weeks later on July 18th. That time, almost 42,000 fans showed up, but beers were limited to two per customer, security was tripled, and everyone had a fine, peaceful time, although the Indians lost 3-2 to the Oakland A's. Though the 1974 Indians ended up tanking in September to finish at 77-85, and fourth place in the American League East, they were in first place as late as July 12th and had some real highlights in a season that saw their attendance rise from a wretched 605,073 to a respectable 1.1 million in 74, likely saving the franchise in Cleveland. Dick Bosman returned to being a starting pitcher and threw a no-hitter against the A's on July 19th at the stadium. Gaylord Perry won 21 games, including 15 in a row, and Charlie Spikes emerged as a young star, leading the club with 22 home runs and 80 RBI. George Hendrick and Oscar Gamble contributed 19 home runs each, and Gamble led the regulars with a 291 batting average. Dave Duncan hit only 200 on the season, but he did contribute 16 home runs and some very fine catching. Though the Tribe still hasn't won the World Series since 1948, They fielded some exciting teams in the 90s and 2000s and reached the World Series in 95, 97, and 2016. Bowing to decades of pressure from Native American groups, the team changed its name and associated symbols after the 2021 season to the Guardians in homage to the Guardians of Traffic statues near Progressive Field in Cleveland. And there is always next season. Home is written and executive produced by Eric and Don Olson. Sound design and original music by Richard Ingraham. Performed by Eric Olson, Buck McWilliams, Alex Olson, Mars Fargo, Tom Fulton, Nathan Welsh, Marty O'Sullivan, Don Olson, Donna Westfall, Brian Westfall, and Richard Ingraham. <laughs> <laughs>